Despite the divisions and conflict in our world, there are people who are working to bridge differences and work to reduce and resolve conflict nonviolently. We spotlight those people doing that work today and the ones who've done that work throughout history on Peace Talks Radio, the nonpartisan forum for talk about peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and it's time for our listen back to just one season's worth of our work at Peace Talks Radio. The contentious election year of 2016 in the U.S. brought many divisions into sharp focus and made a search for methods and ideas to address that divisiveness timely indeed. Our Suzanne Kreider talked with several guests for a program on political polarization, including Rob Carwath, about a program called Speak Your Peace in Duluth, Minnesota and Superior, Wisconsin, which is trying to take a step-by-step approach to bring civility and empathy into political discussions. It is a program to build community and civic engagement, and we created it 13 years ago in our mid-sized community in the northern part of the United States because we realized we had a problem with um, community and civic engagement. We had some anecdotal evidence as well as some um, hard factual data that showed people were disengaging in our community and we knew that that was not a strength. We were not going to solve the problems that were in front of us uh, right immediately at that point or the issues of the future or seize the opportunities of the future if we had people dropping out. And wisely, the Duluth Superior Area Community Foundation engaged a group of people and they came up with a nine-step program that um, works to build civility as a critical tool to getting people engaged. Tell us, Rob, about a few of those um, Speak Your Peace civility tools. The centerpiece of the program is is nine tenets. I often like to say they are things that we learned in kindergarten and first grade, or we should have. I think most of us did. They are things like listen, apologize, pay attention. If you're going to criticize, make the criticism constructive. Nine tenets that, that say, I will, and that's an important part of it. It's I will. It's not I'm going to make you do these things, but I will apologize when needed. I will pay attention. I will do what it takes to engage in healthy conversation with other people in community. And I expect that those will be granted to me too. And sometimes when I present or or show people speak your piece or talk about it, they say, gosh, is this all there is? You know, where are the trained facilitators? And I tell them that the program was deliberately made simple so any community could use these tools. And truly, these are the simple, basic human needs that all of us want and, and truly need. Uh, and when we get them, we're willing to engage and we'll come back again, even if we don't win the day. But when we aren't treated with those measures of civility, we're not as likely to come back. And we may end up saying, I've had enough of the circus. How would Speak Your Peace work like at a family dinner or like a neighborhood or how would it work? Well, let me give you an example of how it worked in Duluth and Superior. 13 years ago, the biggest issue that was driving us apart and causing us to you know, set upon each other, if you will, was employee health care costs that were bankrupting our city. Uh, we showed up on the front page of the New York Times. Our mayor was was there on the Sunday front page one one day. And we were one of many communities nationwide that were dealing with this problem because of growing health care costs and uh, contracts that had been afforded to city workers and retirees. It was simply driving us to the verge of bankruptcy. And 
you know, here in northern Minnesota, that's not a good thing. It's not a good thing anywhere, but we, we were very frustrated and upset by that. And it was causing problems. People weren't willing to invest in a city that was close to technically bankrupt. And so we started accusing each other of, you know, you're the problem. We had a new mayor that was elected, and he and the city council began to bring these warring factions together by saying, look, let's reset. Let's realize that, truth be told, these are deeper problems than either your creation or my creation. We all know not too far deep down that it's not just as simple as that. And grudgingly at first, but increasingly together, we sat down and had conversations and difficult conversations like, you know, contracts that had no raises and closing community centers. It wasn't as if it speak your peace meant we could just walk away and not have any difficult decisions, but we were able to make difficult decisions together. And when we had to close some community centers, the YMCA stepped in and said, well, we'll run some of those for you. We can pick up a few of those. We found solutions together. And within the space of about two years, we had largely fixed our, our employee health care costs that were almost bankrupting our city. It's not that we don't have problems today here in, in uh, scenic Duluth, Minnesota, but uh, we have gotten so much better at sitting down and working together to resolve them that we have seen people investing in our city. We have seen an influx of residents especially young people. It's the exact opposite of where we were 13 years ago when people were disengaging and in some cases moving away because it wasn't working for them. Much more with Rob Warwath and Duluth, Minnesota's Speak Your Peace program on our website, peacetalksradio.com. Next, Ravi Iyer in Los Angeles, and he's one of the academics behind the civilpolitics.org website. Iyer is a social psychologist, PhD from USC. The nonprofit's stated mission is to serve groups and individuals who are trying to bridge moral divisions by connecting them with scientific research that helps them understand those divisions and explore ways to connect peacefully and benefit society. Uh, so the two recommendations are, one, focus on relationships, and two, focus on cooperative situations and not competitive situations. So uh, for the latter, you know, I, uh, you, know you, you can think about how competition breeds animosity in many groups, right? It can be, it breeds animosity in groups in the labs and we bring people in the lab and we, we divide them into arbitrary groups. We can easily create um, animosity between them if we create a competition between them. And we can easily create friendship between them if we have them cooperate on common goals. Our second recommendation is about relationships. You know, I think the, the thing that people often believe to be the path towards, um, you know, getting together and, and cooperating in terms of policy is to make a rational argument. So they believe that if they come up with the right set of facts, they can come up with some way that they make trade-offs where people will, will come up with, with a, the right policy that you know, group A and group B both win. Um, what we find is that it's not about rationality. It's not about figuring out some sort of win-win situation. It's about finding a way that you can actually bridge the emotional divide between another person. If emotion is the thing that causes the animosity between groups, emotion is also the thing that can bring groups together. So once you believe that the other person you know, sitting across from you in a negotiation is a good person and you actually like that person, then the, the cooperation in terms of policy or in terms of coming up with some sort of compromise naturally follows. Um, if you start from a place where you don't like the other person or you got your, your emotions are working against you, then no matter what you know, rational reason you have to cooperate, um, it often doesn't work out. So what do you do in that situation? 
Well, so I think you have to work on the relationship. So if you realize that, if you understand that human beings are social creatures first and rational creatures second, then you work on the social part first. You work on the relationships. So a lot of the groups that we've worked with, um, you know, community groups, groups of, uh, who bring together across political, you know, specific political divisions, um, they work on the relationships first. And then, you know, the compromise is easy. Uh, when, you know, if you dislike the other person, compromise is really hard. I, you know, I, I guess I'd ask you, when was the last time that you ever had a debate with someone and they were convinced by some, you know, amazingly smart, rational argument that you made, right? Like people, human beings are really good at wiggling out of rational arguments. It's hard to convince someone with the sheer force of argument. Um, but when you're, when they like you and they want, you know, they care about your uh, side of, of, of the, the negotiation, then, then, you know, great things are possible. When you say work on relationships, what are a couple ways you can do that? Well, just spending time with people is, is, you know, an easy way. Maybe, you know, don't focus on the thing that you disagree about, but focus on the things you do agree about, right? You know, so, you know, focusing on uh, we all love our kids or, you know, we all love uh, the local sports team. So make small talk. Learn, get to know people in a way that's not about whatever it is you're having a conflict about. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a lot of research that just says that familiarity breeds liking. So just knowing someone makes you like them more, and having exposure to them makes you like them more. Um, you, can, you can be more intentional about it if you want to. There's, there's exercises that people do where, you know, if knowing someone makes you like them more, then knowing them deeply makes you like them even more still. So you can intentionally do things where you disclose, you know, sort of more personal things to another person. Um, and that's been found to increase uh, relationship bonding as well. Ravi Iyer of civilpolitics.org. Our entire episode on dealing with political polarization is our October 2016 episode that you can find at peacetalksradio.com. I'm Paul Ingalls with Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks Radio special built with highlights from our 2016 season, including next our conversation with the head of mission for an organization that won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1999, Suzanne Ceresco of Doctors Without Borders which has been providing humanitarian and health aid in conflict zones since the early 1970s. But in 2016, it was having a harder time than ever keeping their facilities safe from bombing and violence and for fulfilling one of its priorities to find the local doctors and health professionals to staff its hospitals. Soresco said that finding the local help in Syria 2013 proved especially difficult. Applying for a job working as a doctor in that part of Syria wasn't something that anyone wanted to do. People had been kidnapped. People had been imprisoned. Doctors had been killed. Doctors in particular were being targeted in that environment. What's your understanding of why particularly they were targeted? Because the war became very politicized. And helping patients who had served in another role... Mm. Um, wasn't right. medical ethics weren't honored yeah so applying an apolitical oath of medical care yeah was following following mm -hmm. medical ethics was politicized mm -hmm. in that context so we started to spread the word locally because uh, we'd done what we normally do uh, through our regular networks to advertise uh, this position we started speaking to local community leaders and asking if anyone knew a doctor, and we weren't able to find one. And we were seeing more and more people arriving into this IDP camp. 
internally displaced people in the north of the country. What does it mean when you classify them as internally displaced? So internally displaced people are people who haven't crossed an international border. But they've been uh, moved from their homes. But they've somewhere. been moved from their homes, yeah. So mm-hmm. once you cross an international, this is the very simple way to put it, but sure. essentially once you've crossed an international border, you should be recognized as a refugee. Right. And when you're displaced within your own country, you're considered an uh, internally displaced person or an IDP. Mm, okay. And um, oftentimes IDPs can face additional challenges because they're not afforded the same status that refugees. Okay. And uh, it was the first time that I thought that I was potentially going to fail at a, a mission that I'd been assigned to because we always manage to find a way to reach the people that we need to reach and to do what we need to do. And then what happened was that the chemical attacks occurred 200 miles to the south of us, outside of Damascus. And even though we were far away, it became clear that that could happen anywhere in the country. And the towns near where I was working went into days of formal mourning. And I, uh, the staff had to explain to me what was happening, why the shops were closed and there was no one in the street. And it was during this time that a retired doctor who was living near the camp came forward and, and applied. In spite of the risks, he said he didn't want to stay at home any longer and be in his garden. And the people who worked in the camp got a doctor who had 40 plus years of experience. The bravery of our staff in Syria is just incredible. And I've heard from our staff in Syria that he's still working there. And these ambulance drivers and doctors and nurses and cleaners uh, my colleagues in Syria, uh, I'm, I'm just in awe of what they do and their commitment to medical ethics. And uh, we have staff like that all over the world. I'm speaking directly to our Syrian mm-hmm. staff because I got to know a number of them when I was working there. But uh, there's moments like that that really stick right. out for me. And I don't think people think about this too much. What we've been talking about is the politicizing of the availability of health professionals to address oftentimes political atrocities that are making these places flashpoints. This is really a big part of Doctors Without Borders needs is to be able to go in there and mobilize and find the people who, as you say, largely are local. But it's not always easy because I'll bet in a lot of these missions, this is an issue, right? And it's become a larger issue in the last 10 years Mm -hmm. where humanitarian space isn't being respected and the Geneva Convention isn't being respected. And we said this following the bombing of our hospital in Kunduz that war has rules. And to be able to work in these places, we 
need to have safe medical spaces, and these spaces are essential in these areas where population have needs that aren't being addressed. Sometimes we're the only medical organization that's able to operate in these areas, and we need to be able to do that. Well, you're here in our home headquarters of New Mexico to speak with some audiences, and I know it's a difficult conversation to have, but I'm sure when you get in front of people, they are asking you about this October 3rd, 2015 uh, bombing in Afghanistan where 42 people were killed, 30 were injured. Where were you when you heard that news? I was in the Philippines working as a head of mission, and I was, of course, saddened and shocked and appalled, as all my colleagues were. But the other thing that I saw very quickly, a a few days following that, I was at the national uh, monthly meeting of the different national NGOs and international NGOs, and the outpouring of compassion from our counterparts, and the impact that they felt that this attack made on their own work and on humanitarian space was was profound because everyone needs to have safe humanitarian space to be able to do the work that MSF and so many other organizations are doing. This has got to be the worst case of carnage in your organization's history. It is. Yeah. You spoke to this a a moment ago, but let me ask the question this way. Regardless of the ongoing legal outcomes of this event, what can be said about the lessons of this incident? What we're hoping is that we can get assurances from all parties that we're able to continue our work in Kunduz and provide the essential medical services that we were providing in that area and that we can work safely, of course, in Afghanistan and all over the world. Because generically, you are going into places where war is still actively happening uh, in in many cases, not in every case, Mm -hmm. but in in very many cases. Mm -hmm. And one of the challenges I... I'm seeing is 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 that you can say that you're not political, uh, but you do. There must be an effort to communicate and connect with the warring parties to identify facilities, purpose, clarity about your mission, why you're there. That's a big part of the logistical challenge, isn't it? And 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 part of the challenge is 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 sort of outreach to all sides, regardless of politics, regardless of who's right and who's wrong, or whose side are you on? Or well, it, it, and a really important part of our operations, and an important part of my work when I've worked as a project coordinator and working as a head of mission is communicating our neutrality to all parties involved in a conflict and to the population and to all of the, the different local authorities. Mm-hmm. And it's how do you that do that in, in we, certain ways? Just examples of how do you connect? Sure. We make sure that we're speaking to everyone regularly and uh, that everyone knows that we see patients at our 
hospital and also by the quality and the consistency of our medical care by being very transparent about the services that we're providing and that we that we see everyone so mm-hmm. in line of course with the rules of the Geneva Convention but also um, like a hospital in the US if a patient turns up in an emergency room they they aren't asked what they were doing before people are are given medical services and it's it's very transparent so we operate in a very transparent way but also making sure that we're regularly communicating with everyone about what we're doing does it happen sometimes that you are trying to connect with some faction in a war-torn area where they say, yeah, we don't care. We don't care what you're doing. It's not, we're not going to honor that. In those kind of cases, that would be an area where we would be unable to work. So we can't work in places where our medical space wouldn't be hmm. respected and um, the services that we want to provide to the population wouldn't be respected. That's what was so shocking about this Afghan situation. Yeah. Yeah. Suzanne Ceresco, Mission Head for Doctors Without Borders, the 1999 Nobel Peace Prize winners. And more from that interview in our June 2016 episode online at peacetalksradio.com. Kids learn peaceful meditation at school. And more from our archive when this program continues. It's Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks Radio special. We'll continue in a minute. Listening to Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special, highlights from just one season of our series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls with Suzanne Kreider, our co founder, who wanted to explore programs that were introducing peaceful meditation to school kids in our March 2016 episode that offered instruction on meditation to students in interested public schools here. Scott told Suzanne about how the classes seemed to work to help youngsters handle their more difficult emotions cut down on fights and conflicts, and improve schoolwork. First of all, recognize those strong feelings, because I think a lot of times people have feelings of anger or sadness, uh, and they don't, they never take the time to see it. They just uh, either ignore it or try and kind of gloss over it and say, well, I'm not, you know, that angry or I'm not that sad about something. And as we all know, and and I talk to the kids about this, it's not like the anger or the sadness, that deep emotion just goes away on its own for the most part. It's still there, and it's going to come out somewhere. What I'm talking about is really instead of trying to either ignore or kind of wish away your emotions, 
really turning towards them. And I think this is a great misconception that people have about mindfulness is that um, it's all about kind of checking out and, and just you're able to disengage and just not have to deal with anything. But it's actually the opposite. It's a, it's a turning towards and it's a direct engagement with whatever those emotions or feelings or experiences are and working with the kids on how to turn towards those things and really spend some time with them. And then by doing so, being able to recognize what a proper response is to those emotions instead of what a just a gut reaction or a quick reaction is to them, right? And I talk to the kids about, you know, raise your hand if you've ever gotten angry. So all the kids raise their hand, right? <laughs> yeah. And we all would in this room. Um, <laughs> yeah. So raise your hands if you've ever gotten angry. And then I talk about raise your hand if you have a sibling. And almost every hand, I mean, a lot of kids have brothers or sisters um, or cousin, you know, if they, if they don't raise their hands and do you have a cousin who's around your age, whatever. So they almost all, or you have a good friend, right? And then I talk about, you know, what happens when you get angry at your good friend, your cousin, your brother, your sister. What's that thing that you've done that you wish you hadn't done? And then we kind of go around the room. I oh. hit him. I scratched him. I screamed at him. I, you know, broke their doll. I, I ignored them. Ignored, <laughs> ignored them. Any number of reactions that are possibly not very skillful. And then we actually practice a little bit of mindfulness. We'll sit and we'll follow our breath. And at this point, we're... I don't know, at least a third, maybe halfway into the classes that I'm teaching the kids. We start small and we build on them. So at this point, we've learned how to sit quietly and follow our breath. And so we talk about let's follow our breath for a moment. Let's recognize that anger and, and how we're feeling towards that person. Imagine yourself angry and, and we all make an angry face and we, you know, we grunt a little bit or whatever. That's the kids fun. really get into it. Yeah, right? The kids fun. really get into it. Yeah, it's very demonstrative for them. Very, you know, they, they really experience it. And then as we have that angry face, then we breathe in. Let's all breathe in and let's all breathe out. And then we do that for, if I'm starting small, we'll do it for three breaths or we'll do it for a half a minute or a minute or depending on where we are in the class, we'll do it for a certain amount of time. And then we'll talk about, you know, as you breathe in, what happened with your anger, right? And for the most part, you know, their fa you can see it on their faces as they're, because they're sitting there and they're making their angry face. And as they're breathing in, their angry face is kind of going away. And of course, we're only pretending at that point, but huh. it's analogous to being angry. It goes angry. away. It goes the, away, the right? angry face right. goes away. Right. And so, but I follow it with not just that, all right, we sat and we breathed and the angry, the anger went away, but what are we going to do with that anger? Because like I said before, it doesn't necessarily go away, yeah. right? So. Yeah you got to figure out what you're going to do with it. So then we talk about responding versus reacting and how if you can sit and take a few breaths, and, you know, a few breaths or sit for a minute or whatever and sit with that emotion, with that anger, it'll help you come to a response. So what's a better response, you know, better than hitting your little brother who just, you know, took your toy? What's a better response? You know, well, I could ask him to give it back to me. That's a better response. I could tell my mom and dad. You know, so we go through the list mm, and we, we okay. go around the classroom and all the kids jump in. And, you know, at some points it's total chaos because they're all yelling out answers. But um, that's okay because yeah. they're seeing that there are so many other responses. Yeah. Well, are there other responses our listeners could use like adults could use? Well, I think it's very similar uh, for adults in terms of anger, and I'll use myself as an example. Um, <laughs> when I get angry, and I raise my hand when I'm in that class with the kids, you know, a better response than yelling is talking, right, and telling somebody how you feel. I feel angry. Mm -hmm. um, and not to get too, I don't know, psychoanalytical or whatever, and like, let's all make an I feel statement. But I think that this translates to adults as well in terms of 
um, talking about? How do you feel? How did that make you feel when that person did that? And what, what was your reaction? You know, what did you want to do, right? I wanted to scream. But what's a better way to respond, right? I know you're laughing, but this is just really translates, it's right? It's true. No, this? I'm laughing. I see this in my daily life. I mean, yeah. It's a true. I said that one time. I said an I statement to mm-hmm. a guy I was dating. Mm-hmm. He looked at me and said, is this like the peace talk stuff? <laughs> there <laughs> I was you like, go. yeah, it is. Right. Yeah. So in, in terms of uh, peace and nonviolence, um, uh, I am – for the most part, pretty optimistic and occasionally very mm-hmm. foolishly optimistic. But as we're speaking about this, I'm imagining in my mind, what if as adults we were able to do this instead of screaming and yelling at each other, hitting each other, shooting each other, we were able to talk about how we're feeling and what's going on and try and get into a dialogue and a conversation and come up with responses instead of reactions. What kind of a different world would we live in? And if we could learn that as children, then we're going to grow up doing that. And we're going to teach that to our children. And many times I use my own experience as a child who went through many traumatic experiences, who did not have the language, did not have my, no, you know, mindfulness. There was nothing, you know, back then. Did not have this skill, did not have this ability. Um, and I really wish I did. And so I really want to share that with kids because I just think it's just so valuable. It's done a lot for me in my adult life. I wish I had learned it earlier because it really could have helped me in my younger life. That's Scott Cameron talking about his teaching of mindfulness meditation to school kids in Albuquerque. More with him in our longer version of this show, plus our complete interview with him on our website, peacetalksradio.com. So back now to someone who is getting this training earlier in life, Evan, a 10-year-old who took a couple of Scott's mindfulness classes at his elementary school in Albuquerque, talking with Suzanne Kreider. Well, Evan... Some people think mindfulness is kind of a weird thing. Do you think that? No, I think it's to calm your body. What does that mean? It will make you relax and make not make you stressed, clear your thoughts. Yeah. Do you think mindfulness impacts getting along or peace? Mm, it does. Like if you're angry and you want to like throw something... If you do mindfulness, it would calm you down, so you just would walk away. Huh. You'd walk away. Yeah. Well, sometimes when I'm with friends or with my brother, I would get into a fight. So I would just probably go into a different room and probably do mindful breathing to calm me down and to calm my breath down. What if someone came up and punched you in the stomach? Um, They were, like, really mad. So I would probably say, don't do that again. And then I'd probably walk away Hmm. and do mindfulness. How come you wouldn't punch them back? Well, if you do mindfulness, it will calm you down. And so it won't make you want to hit them back. That's a young man named Evan who took some of Scott Cameron's meditation classes for kids at his Albuquerque school. More on that and other efforts to bring peaceful meditation into the school classroom available in our March 2016 episode online at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. I'm Paul Ingalls, and you're listening to one of our compendium of highlights from just one season of our Peace Talks Radio series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Next, we turn to part of a conversation we had with a couple of community faith leaders 
who have had experience stepping into communities where racial tensions have flared, sometimes due to shooting incidences between police officers and unarmed African-American citizens, like in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014. We hear from Reverend Michael Ray Matthews first of the PICO National Network. PICO stands for People Improving Communities Through Organizing. Reverend Matthews described the theology of resistance that guides his work. It's a multi-faith theological model for articulating how faith informs our commitment to build power for change. So there's a fundamental question that lives at the heart of the theology of resistance and is inspired by the question, what does faith have to say to those whose backs are against the wall? What do we say to people who are being oppressed, who are being marginalized? Does faith tell them to simply pray and hope and trust, or does faith tell them to act? Does faith tell them to resist? And so we are exploring the ways in which our faith traditions hold within them examples and teachings about how we resist the logic and the impulse of empire, how we resist um, injustice in our communities. And so we ask that question and then we try to respond to that question about how faith informs us in three, through, through sort of three narratives. And that narrative, that the arc of that narrative includes encounter, disruption, reimagining, and action. Where in our sacred traditions are there already stories uh, that are about people uh, being disrupted by uncommon encounters uh, that cause them to reimagine who they are and understand who they are in different ways and take action in a different way that allowed for the transformation of themselves and their community. And then do your groups look into the Bhagavad Vita and uh, the Quran and other religious texts? Yes, yes, absolutely. So we ask people to pay attention to all of the sacred texts. And some of those sacred texts are not even, um, you know, in a text form. Some of them are, are oral stories that people are passing down. Some of them are embedded in ritual um, and song. And so we, we're asking people to, to really uh, explore the depths of their own spiritual backgrounds. So uh, the first time when a lot of people see a community's organizing efforts manifest is when it gets to a critical point or there is a shooting in the community, or there is some sort of an event, and then there's a demonstration, and then it's on television. I want to talk about those moments, but what I hear you saying is, is that there's a lot of training that's focused on the unseen steps that are happening up to a crisis point like that. Absolutely. I mean, there, there is a need for us to be constantly building the relational power um, of, our com- of our communities, um, the, the civic understanding in our communities, so that when these moments arise, we are ready uh, to respond to it. And we have the networks of relationships. We have the ways of trying to understand and analyze what's happening in our community. We have the connections with people who um, have decision-making power to then be able to take some kind of action together. When you look back on Ferguson a few years down the road now, how do you evaluate the overall effort of community organizing to work for change and to affect change in Ferguson? Well, I really feel that, you know, Ferguson was a watershed experience for us in PICO, but I think for the whole movement. Um, I think it opened uh, the doors for a lot of conversations um, about the tactics that we use in organizing, uh, protest, uh, have not necessarily been one of the primary tools in faith-based community organizing. Um, and now people are paying attention to 
sort of the sacred moments that, that happen when people are outside together in public expressing their values. I think that it highlighted the role of race um, in our work um, because you couldn't talk about Ferguson without talking about race. You couldn't talk about Ferguson without talking about gender. Um, when you talk, you're talking about Ferguson and Black Lives Matter, you're talking about a movement and a moment that was born in the hearts and vision of, of women, of black women, of black queer women. And so there are ways in which uh, we have had to renegotiate um, our understanding of, of, of who leads this work and um, whose analysis informs uh, this, this work. And so I think it's, I think it's had a, a major impact um, on organizing uh, writ large, um, on PICO organizing um, in particular. Reverend Matthews, talk a little bit about the role of public protest and social justice work, though. It certainly seems to make a lot of people uh, uneasy to watch it unfold from afar. It's a much different experience to be in the middle of it as you have been sometimes. But talk about the pros and cons of what you've learned from your participation in all this and your study of it that's important for us all to take in. Yeah. I would say that um, public protests can be uneasy because it's outside of the historic norm of how we've organized, as I mentioned before. I think there are also concerns about like the safety of public protest. Um, and I think also there's concern about the uh, respectability and order. There's a discomfort with public expressions of of anger. Um, but we, we teach that anger is really about grief. Uh, the root word of the word for anger is Old Norse for grief. Um, and that it's important, it's important that we restore practices of, of public grieving um, in our society, in our communities. Um, I think that's the beginning of reimagining, um, is to be able to grieve and to be able to articulate um, what, what has been lost or what has been violated. Um, you know, in, in our community. So we, I think we learned in Ferguson that public protest is a, is a disruptive um, encounter that creates that space for reimagining who we are and who we want to be together. I value public protest today because I think it's where the wall between the sacred and the secular collapses. It's where we begin to see, see the sacredness of, of one another um, in ways that we couldn't see before. Reverend Michael Ray Matthews, is Director of Clergy Organizing for the PICO National Network, which offers support for faith-based community organizations working for social change. More from him in our hour-long version of this episode and our complete conversation with him at peacetalksradio.com. A former PICO Network colleague of his is our next guest, Reverend Alvin Herring, who's Director of Racial Equity and Community Engagement for the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. We continued with Reverend Herring on the current state of race relations in the U.S., where he said a thoughtful study of the idea of implicit bias seems to bring more hope for progress than shouts of racism at each other. The foundational building blocks of racist systems begin in places where, where biases are shaped and formed, and uh, those biases become uh, kind of locked in at a subconscious level or a level where we aren't always able to access them intentionally and that those biases are performative in other words we act them out certainly we act them out explicitly with intention but a lot of times we're acting them out implicitly without intention but certainly um, with impact we found that that's a much more uh, effective way to bring people into the kind of 
conversation and into the kind of orbit, if you will, uh, in which more intentional action and deeper conversation can happen. What are some of the personal responsibility steps that any of us can take to move beyond that point, uh, beyond the overall culture of exclusion and othering? So the first thing people can do is to really seek out and live inside completely, thoroughly, authentically, live inside those relationships with people whose identity and culture and background is different than their own, to really see them and then really move inside that experience such that you become an ally and you carry a commitment to their uh, liberation, if you will, or their health and wholeness and healing, similar to the one that you carry for yourself and for your family. I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing is, and this is really where it gets hard for people, although the first step is hard too, and that is that, you know, there's a narrative in this country that supports systematic racism and systematic othering. And we've got to challenge that narrative. And the, the most effective way to challenge that narrative is people need to begin to tell their story, speak in their authentic voice, share their identity, make it known that, they've, that they have a level of comfort about who they are and a level of curiosity about the other, but to really gather with one another. This is now beyond the one-to-one, but gather with one another in church, in synagogue, in mosque, in the streets, at school meetings and PTA meetings. Get in there with each other and have the kind of conversation. And if you can't give all the most constructive answers, at least have the courage to ask the important questions. The third thing is that people are going to have to speak up. They're going to have to, you know, understand that they are powerful, even much more powerful when they work together, and then even more powerful still when they work together across race lines, across gender lines, across other lines of identity. And that organizing work, that coming into power, that's really, really, really hard. But we won't get to where we need to get to if we're not able to do that work as well. Reverend Alvin Herring, Director of Racial Equity and Community Engagement for the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. More from him and our other guests in that October 2016 episode, Exploring Bridges to Racial Understanding. You can find it at peacetalksradio.com. And stay tuned here for more highlights from that season of our programs when Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks Radio special, continues right after this break. It's Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special, featuring highlights from just one of our seasons going back to 2002. I'm Paul Ingalls with Suzanne Kreider. 
who's always been very interested in how brain science can lead us to a better understanding of how conflict begins and how it might be reduced or resolved. In 2016, Suzanne talked with Emile Bruneau, visiting scholar at the Annenberg School for Communications at the University of Pennsylvania. Bruneau's been using brain scanning technology to learn more detail about empathy and how our brains divide our world into us versus them. I know, for example, that we have this tendency to feel more empathy for the in-group than the out-group, right? For your people than for their people. Um, empathy in itself is a really interesting process because um, as much as it can drive what we call pro-sociality, it can drive you to, uh, to help and be kind to others. Once you include an in-group and an out-group, once you place us and them on top of empathy, now all of a sudden empathy can have completely different motivations because now empathy for your in-group can actually motivate you to harm other people. If you think that the in-group is being harmed by the out-group and you feel a lot of empathy for your in-group, and not much empathy for the outgroup, then it can motivate you to political violence. And this is one of the, I think, astonishing realizations about a lot of people who have tried to commit political violence. So these are suicide bombers whose suicide vests didn't go off or who were thwarted before they were able to do this, or people who actually assassinated people from the other group. What you find is that they aren't sociopaths, and, and it actually makes sense that they're not, right? Why would a sociopath risk their own life for another person, right? Sociopaths, they don't care about other people, so they wouldn't be motivated to do that. Instead, they seem to be incredibly empathetic people, but their empathy is unequally distribu distributed. So they, they have high empathy for their in-group, which motivates them to act on their behalf, and they have low empathy for the out-group, which removes the barrier for acting against them. So what I think of as this, this difference in empathy or the parochial distribution of empathy seems to be a key component of intergroup conflict. And so I've been looking at ways in which you can decrease the gap in empathy between in-group and out-group. And I think there are some very simple ways to do this. Right? One way is um, instead of informing people about something that happened to in-group and out-group members and, and getting their difference in empathy for in-group and out-group members. You can instead proceed that with a little bit of information about the people to humanize them. And that does indeed decrease this gap in empathy. But more interestingly, the type of information you provide them seems to matter. Specifically, if you provide them information about the other person's mind, their habits, their beliefs, even if they're not necessarily positive, that is particularly good at humanizing the other group and particularly good at decreasing this intergroup empathy gap. And does empathy have something, Emil, to do with power? It seems like people who are in a higher level of power have less empathy. First of all, empathy is, is multifaceted. I think um, this is an important thing to realize. There are many different ways we think of empathy, and they're all completely legitimate, but all very, very different from each other. And I think one difference that I think is really interesting is the difference between empathy as personal distress. So you see somebody else suffering, and you just feel bad. You feel uncomfortable. Um, the reason why this is interesting is the easiest way to relieve personal distress is to leave, 
right, is to get out of that situation. This is contrasted with empathic concern, which is a feeling of concern for the other people. So instead of it being directed inward on yourself, it's directed outward on them. And the easiest way to ease empathic concern is actually to approach the other person. So here are two different types of empathy that have completely different predictions on what you would do if you're feeling it. When we think about increasing or decreasing empathy, I think it's equally important to figure out, well, what exactly are we trying to do? What type of empathy are we actually trying to increase? And I think um, this is important for conflict resolution programs because when they have in mind activities that are trying to foster empathy, I think it's important for them to know whether they're trying to foster distress at the other side suffering. You know, are you just trying to get them to squirm when they watch a video of the other side in a lot of pain? If they're trying to do that, that might actually cause the group to avoid the other group. It might not have the desired impact. Whereas if you are trying to foster empathic concern, then that's a very different outcome. And it might be a very different uh, program that initiates empathic concern versus personal distress. Much more with Emile Bruneau in our hour-long version of this program, available to hear at our website, peacetalksradio.com. Our next guest is Mari Fitstuff, director of the International Master of Arts Program in Coexistence and Conflict at Brandeis University in Cambridge, Massachusetts, who told Suzanne that she doesn't feel her work is about reducing conflict. One of the mistakes we sometimes make is that we sometimes claim our field is about conflict resolution. It is not. Uh, There are conflicts in everyday life. There should be conflicts in everyday life. Much of the inequities that we have in our societies can only be managed by people actually conflicting against them, taking an advocacy stance against them. What we have is people um, who are committing violence and we want to try and persuade them to actually address the conflict in a different way. And I was also struck by the fact that uh, truth seems to disappear out the window in situations of conflict and facts matter very little and it seems to be emotions that matter much, much more. But particularly I was struck when I did my own work some years ago on my doctorate when I was actually interviewing people who had been using violence to achieve political ends and who had now turned and were interested in dialogue as a way forward instead. And I was wondering why they changed. And the thing that struck me was that Almost nobody had changed their mind because they changed their mind. Most of them had changed because they had experiences that had changed their emotions. And that led me then to look at the role of emotions and subsequently to the role of genes and hormones. And perhaps looking at do we have a legacy, perhaps from our evolutionary history, that actually in a sense restrains us in the same way that Freud would talk about the unconscious mind. I think I discovered that we also have an unconscious body. What do you mean by an unconscious body? I think many of us have processes that are emotional, that can be induced by hormones, that are a legacy of genetics that we're not very well aware of. One of the things that I'm interested in is, for instance, people when they are individuals are often very different to the way they are in crowds. For instance, some years ago, there were riots in the UK during the summer and the government decided to take a very hard stand on this. So there were hundreds of people who were brought to court and actually had to face up to the fact that they had been rioting. And what struck me was the number of uh, middle-aged or middle-class students who normally would be um, very uh, contented, very rational, very hardworking, who said that they felt as if uh, some magic had taken over them. They couldn't understand what had happened to them, that they actually began to riot with everyone else. 
And there's a lot of evidence to show that riots in themselves, groups in themselves, they actually have an effect on our emotions. And very few of us are aware of this until we find ourselves in the middle of a riot. I've had such experiences myself when I've been in situations where I have seen people whom I have valued for their rationality lose control of that rationality when something happens that a group wants to act upon that is something that they're sympathetic to and different parts of themselves come out in that context and afterwards they really are surprised at what's happened to them. When we talk about people who um, move towards... Assuming that we're excluding psychopaths, which actually are very few and far between. And I have to tell you that um, there's no evidence that it is psychopaths who are doing much of the killing in the world. And don't forget, much of the killing in the world is done fairly cold-bloodedly by governments who are actually the main perpetrators of wars. In terms of those who would uh, choose outside of, uh, of government, outside of the legal processes to use violence... Very often it is logical for them to do this. Very often it is seen as a good thing for them to do this. They feel as passionately about it as somebody does who fights for the United States Army, who fights for the UK Army, etc. It is rational in their terms that they would use this, that is a weapon that is used by many governments in the world, to fight for their cause, to fight for their people against other people. So it really helps um, to understand that it's not just as complex as suddenly people overnight turn into killers and go out to uh, attack a particular group. More from Mari Fitzduff of Brandeis University in our February 2016 episode called The Neuroscience of Peacemaking. Find it at peacetalksradio.com. In just the few minutes we have left, let's hear from two more of our authors that we featured in 2016 episodes. First, hear Peter Stearns, one of a couple of historians who wrote overviews of world history that we found focused primarily on peacemaking periods and peacemaking philosophies rather than the traditional story of wars approach to world history. I wrote this book, among other things, because of a conviction that American society has become um, too complacent about militarism. We've learned how to conduct wars that don't impact the majority of citizens in their daily lives. Uh, we've learned how to com- compartmentalize, and the net result of this is that we are we are at war one way or another more years than not in the past 25 years, and to me that's deeply troubling. I'm not trying to, to get on a political soapbox here, but we need more opportunities within the United States to see peace as a desirable goal. It's fallen out of our political rhetoric. We talk about security, but we don't talk about peace. So I think the opportunity to... Um, encourage younger people to think of peace as a goal that ought to be sought at least as fervently as uh, uh, environmental quality. I think that's a, that's a desirable message, even if it's a political one. I think other societies, frankly, have become less militaristic than we are. And I think peace discussions in several other societies, I mean, obviously Japan and Germany that have, have, that have strong peace cultures now, but I think peace discussions in other societies are um, more frequent and more possible than has become true in the United States. And I think that's a national issue we need to be willing to address. George Mason University's Peter Stearns, author of Peace in World History. In that same episode, we also talked with Canadian scholar Anthony Adolph, author of a similar book, Peace, a World History, who concluded that our study of world peace should point us toward an important realization. 
It's really the worldview that came out of the Cold War, that there was one version of world peace that needed to be imposed upon the whole world, whether it was communism or capitalism. And it was that one view of peace that needed to be imposed upon the whole world that that was the driving force of many national policies. What I tried to do is, is in expressing that it's it should be in pieces, the pun is intended, of course, is that they need to be more localized. The meanings of peace that are in Canada, for example, compared to Zanzibar, for example, are very different. And or if you take Syria as another example, what does peacemaking and peace mean in those countries? And how can they be pieced together again? That's, a, that's the other big question. It's not the imposition of one kind of peace onto the whole world. It's really an organic view where you take it from the ground up and you say, okay, how can peace be developed here and now for individuals, groups, and between groups? Author Anthony Adolph. And more with both him and Peter Stearns can be found in our April 2016 episode at peacetalksradio.com. And let's finish now with another author interview from September of 2016, peace activist and Jesuit priest John Deere, who wrote The Beatitudes of Peace, which broke down the message of the New Testament's Sermon on the Mount. So the world has always said, someone's going to do violence to you, one-on-one or nationally. And you have two options. You fight back using the means of the opponent, you use violence to end violence. You fight fire with fire and it just becomes a huge conflagration. No, we don't do that. Or the world says you run away and do nothing, you're passive. And I think with others that Jesus here is offering a third way. This is what Gandhi discovered. Someone's coming at you with violence, you do not sit back. You engage them, but you don't use the means of the opponent. That's the difference. It's not passivity. It's active resistance to one who does violence, but it's not using the means of violence. And that means it demands creativity, which we're all trained in violence. We have a lifetime. We know Mm -hmm. how to fight back. That's what we learn in school. That's what we're taught by our families, and the churches aren't teaching us. Well, that's why Martin Luther King in every march required three-hour training in nonviolent resistance. You know, when they're going to do the sit-in, you have to practice with someone yelling at you so that you don't, you learn not to fight back. You learn to love them, but to hold your ground until your acceptance of suffering with love wears down your opponent until he recognizes the truth of your common humanity and he stops his violence. And you're going, well, that's not going to happen. That's what happens. That this stuff works. And I've experienced in my own life, and Gandhi said this can now be applied to nations. That's where we, mm-hmm. the world changed. My experience when I've been threatened myself from homeless people, someone pounded, was beating me up on the chest. I said, hey, why are you doing this? What's wrong? And the guy stopped. I'll never forget it. Mm-hmm. And he was like, oh, I'm just having such a bad day. Right. And it's often just returning someone to sanity. The most famous of these kind of episodes is was on Oprah about five years ago. Remember the guy in the courtroom in Atlanta? He takes a gun and he opens fire and he escaped and he fled into North Georgia and it was live on CNN. And sure enough, he goes into some... <laughs> young woman's house and she's sitting up reading the bible late that friday night and she's going okay if i try to do violence i'm gonna get killed he's stronger than me i I can what am i gonna do i can't be afraid i have to engage so she made him a meal and talked to him and convinced him to turn himself in my personal experience is it works 
war is not working, so let's see if we can apply these methods uh, for a more peaceful world and try to reclaim our humanity in this inhuman time. That's John Deere, author of The Beatitudes of Peace, and that's all the time we have. Please visit us and support our work at peacetalksradio.com. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening.